Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Monmouthville, Pennsylvania. Have you ever wondered if the religious practices and teachings we see in churches today are even close to what Jesus himself actually taught? Would it not be great to be able to hear what Jesus himself had to say? Thankfully, there are at least 43 messages that Jesus Christ spoke that are recorded in the pages of the New Testament. Last week, our pastor examined the first of Jesus' sermons, a message he delivered in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. You may recall that Christ's words caused quite a stir. In fact, after hearing our Lord's message, a mass of people from the synagogue tried to kill him. One would think, after such a reaction against the previous message, that Jesus would have learned his lesson, so to speak, and would tone down his teaching to make it more palatable to his audience. Yet that's not what we see in the second sermon. In fact, in this message, Jesus claimed to be above the commandment to keep the Sabbath day because he was equal with God. Did Christ really mean to make such a claim? Even if he did, how could he back up such a bold assertion? We hope to answer these and other questions as you hear this message of Jesus that our pastor is entitled, Christ is Equal with God the Father. Today we come to what many Bible scholars would believe to be the second sermon of Christ listed in the New Testament. If you listened last week, you may recall that Jesus preached his first recorded message in the synagogue at his hometown of Nazareth and was nearly killed there due to his his audience's violent reaction against his teaching. As we come to this second message of Christ, we are still early in Jesus' ministry, and you will find that he again boldly proclaims truth with very little regard for his safety and for what people would think of what he said. Uh, The backdrop of the sermon is that in in, in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, Jesus had just healed a man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. Jesus told the man to rise, take up his bed, and walk. Now, when you think of a bed, don't think of a mattress like we would have, but the bed would be like a very, very thin sleeping bag, like almost like a blanket that the man would be laying on and had been unfortunately confined to that or something like that for uh, many, many years, 38 years. Now, the, that was fine, but the problem started as the man's walking down the street with his bedroll under his arm, and someone questions why he is working on the Sabbath day. Now, this goes back to the fact that the Israelites were rightly observing God's command to rest on the Sabbath, uh, but over the years they had to define exactly what work involved because you can understand people would be trying to bend the rules uh, change the rules whatever and so they'd even defined how far you could walk which is a little over uh, half a mile on the sabbath day and um, had to make different kind of rules on this the problem is is that sometimes when we make these man-made rules on top of what were god's rules the original rule of the sabbath then things can get perverted and messed up. We begin to sometimes either judge God's rule by our man-made decisions, or we sometimes even put the man-made idea ahead of God's rule and its intent itself. So why did God give the Sabbath command? Well, Jesus himself commented on it in a different situation with, with a different audience, but let me quote him. He says, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. That is a really common sense and wise statement to make. 
God gave the Sabbath command to be a blessing to man, to make sure that men and women had a chance to rest and to take time to worship God and take time for their families. Simply put, the Sabbath was made to be a blessing, not to bring bondage. So let's apply this principle to the man that Jesus just healed. He's been lying on his bedroll, unable to walk now for 38 years. And now that Jesus had healed him, what was he to do? Was he just to leave his bedroll there? Was he just to wait there, stand there, or sit there until the Sabbath is over? Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to do exactly what Jesus said? Hey, get up. He's rejoicing. This is a wonderful miracle has just taken place. He's able to walk again. Roll up your bedroll and move out on your new life. Well, the fact is that when people saw that, and it got back to the religious leadership, that they determined that Jesus had broken God's law, when in fact he'd only broken their man-made rendering of God's law. And they were so angry about this, and verse 16 tells us they plotted to kill him. By the way, if they had succeeded in killing him at that point, that would have been violation of the command, you shall not murder, which is a uh, far more serious command in itself. But by the way, why weren't they rejoicing over this man that had been delivered? But due to their envy and hatred for Christ, they were blinded to this, uh, which is a sad reality. So now, in, in this message, Jesus is defending what he had just done, defending the fact that he had healed a man on the Sabbath and that he had told him to carry his bedroom. And what Jesus does, instead of being on the defensive, he goes on the offensive to say that he, in fact, has every right to do whatever he wants to on the Sabbath because he is equal with God, that he is actually the one who made the law. So he is above the law as God himself. Let's hear him out and see what he says. says, but Jesus answered them. This is now I'm picking up on this message, John 5, verse 17. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. What he's saying is, as God, he's not under the Sabbath command. That's not to say that as a child, Jesus would not voluntarily submit to the Sabbath regulations, nor was it in all likelihood that he would be out there working or doing any kind of harvesting on the Sabbath. No. But when someone came his way and someone needed healing, he would do it on whatever day of the week it was. And one of the ways he explained it was, my father talking about God himself My father works on the Sabbath. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't take a day off. Boy, I'm glad about that. People get sick every day of the week. Babies are still born every day of the week. There are are people in harm's way every day of the week. Families need comfort every day of the week. People still pray every day of the week. Uh, We all need breath. Bible says that every breath we get comes from God, and we need it every day of the week. God doesn't take a day off. And Jesus is saying, as God's son, I've been working too. Matter of fact, Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 to 17 tell us that in Jesus, all things are held together. So, notice the reaction of, the, of Jesus' enemies. It says in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They got what he was saying. They got the fact that Jesus is claiming to be God's son. He is therefore claiming to be equal with God. 
And in their minds, that was blasphemy. Now, stop here for just a second. Let me ask you a question. Do you think this was a one-time thing? That is, did Jesus really claim to be God? I've been surprised over the years to see as I've been studying the Gospels more and more just how early and often Jesus was talking about his deity or his identity as the promised Messiah. Now, much of this information we get from the book we're looking at today, the Gospel of John. And I want to just take a moment to to give you some claims that were made either by Christ or about people who were becoming followers of Christ already before this event took place. And we're only in chapter 5 of John's Gospel. John, the first verse of, of John's Gospel, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and Word is, is, is G- John describing Jesus there, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very first verse of his Gospel. In John the Baptist, chapter 1, verse 29, calls Jesus the Lamb of God. In verse 34, same chapter, he says he calls him the Son of God. In chapter 1, verse 41, one of his future disciples, Andrew, calls him the Messiah. In chapter 1, verse 45, another disciple calls him of him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. The idea that he was predicted, he's the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Nathaniel, another disciple, calls him the Son of God, the King of Israel, chapter 1, verse 49. When Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, he calls it my father's house. Jesus uh, uh, calls himself only begotten son in the probably most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, conversation with Nicodemus. In verse 18, Jesus says that whosoever does not believe in the name of the only begotten son of God, Jesus talking about himself, is condemned already. He's talking about being condemned to hell without that faith. John the Baptist, just a few verses later, chapter 3, verse 36, he's having a conversation with some religious leaders. He says basically the same thing, that believing in Christ is the key to eternal life and refusing to do so leaves a person under God's wrath. Jesus talking in chapter 4 to a Samaritan woman, uh, and this woman says, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And here's Jesus' simple answer, I who speak to you am he. The Samaritans of this woman's village, she goes back and tells them that she's met this man that she's suspecting is the Christ. They come out and they and they see Jesus. There's a uh, he spends time with them, and eventually they say this to the woman. I uh, they say we now know that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Clearly, already in John's Gospel, he's been laying out the case that Jesus is the Son of God, therefore equal with God. And the reaction of the of the leadership of Jesus' nation of Israel fits that. They understood he claimed uh, uh, he's over the Sabbath. He also claimed to be equal with God. And they look at that as blasphemy. Now, it would be blasphemy for anybody to say that if they're not God. And so we are really already confronted with this question, is Jesus crazy? He's not a good teacher if he's making these, these, these wild claims that aren't true. Is he crazy or is he in fact God? Sort of like the guy that goes to the psychologist and he says, um, he says, Doc, he says, I, I'm a dog. The psychologist looks at him and he goes, well, Bob, he goes, how long have you felt like you're a dog? And Bob looked at him rather surprised. He says, well, ever since I was a puppy. 
Well, obviously, Bob's got some issues there. Well, if Jesus isn't God, then then let's be honest, then he's, he's, he's out of his mind. And so he's going to begin to share with these people, and many of them hostile to him, the reality of, of his, his deity, the fact that he is God in the flesh. First thing he's talking about um, is, is that as God's son, he's going to do works that only God could do. He's going to back up the talk with his actions, with his deeds. So in, in verse 19, he says this, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the, the, speaking of the father, the son also does in like manner. So he's saying, I'm not acting independently of God the Father, but I can do anything that God the Father does. So he goes on, verse 20, for the Son also does in like manner. For the, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus is saying, I'm going to imitate God the Father in even greater ways than you've seen. They just saw a man who hadn't walked in 38 years being able to walk now. And tragically, instead of rejoicing in that blessing, they are angry with Christ for having the audacity to heal him on the Sabbath and then to tell him to carry his bedroll on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is saying to them, I am doing my Father's will and I'll back it up by showing you even greater miracles than you've seen so far. And he mentions one in verse 21. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of the Son gives life to all whom he will. He is saying, I have the power to raise the dead. Now in the Gospels, we're told of, of three different resurrections that Christ performed. The first one is the widow of Nain's son. She was a lady that had no other children. She'd lost her husband. And Jesus, just seeing her and the terrible procession going and, and understanding the situation, gave her son back to her. What a blessing. Second was a man by the name of Jairus. He was a leader of, a, of the synagogue in his area. His daughter was deathly sick. She's 12 years old. Before Jesus got to her, she had already died, and Jesus raised her from the dead. The one probably most famous miracle, the, the, the last of the three, was, and again, these are just the ones we recorded in the scriptures. We don't know what else he may have done. But Lazarus, uh, a friend of Jesus, had been dead four days when Jesus showed up and, and raised him from the dead. Certainly, Jesus is backing up his words with his deeds. Then he says, I not only have the power to raise the dead, and by the way, it's far more extensive than he's saying right now, but I have the power to judge all people. I have the authority to do this. He goes on. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. He's saying, I am going to be the one that all will stand in front of. I am the one who is going to judge the world. Now, I, I think of that, I think of a passage in Matthew chapter 7, which is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount is the third message that we have that's recorded in the scriptures and that's quite extensive and and we hope to get to that in future weeks but as he's coming to the conclusion listen to him talking like the judge he says not everyone who says to me lord lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father which is in heaven many will say to me in that day they're talking to me 
because I am the judge. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is saying, I will declare this. This is my will be my judgment. So as he is saying, I'm equal with God. I have the power to raise the dead. I have the authority to judge all people. Now, how are you and I to respond to this? These claims. Verse 23, back in John chapter 5, he says this, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now think about that. We are to give honor to Christ equally with God the Father. And a matter of fact, he goes on from there to say this, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That means to to fail to honor Christ as God is to fail to honor God himself, God the Father himself. Do you not see how Jesus is claiming absolute equality with God the Father here? Now, is Jesus correct in this assertion? Or is he crazy? And Jesus is not leaving us any doubt as to where he stands on it. He is saying, I am equal with the Father. And you need to glorify me as you would glorify the Father. But he goes on. In verse 24, he tells us we are to believe in the Father who sent his Son to save us. And notice, if you're wondering about what salvation is all about, this is a great verse to hear. It's John 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, hearing God's, hearing Jesus' word, okay, like the Bible, hearing what he has to say, and believes on him who sent me, that would be God, God the Father, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment or into condemnation, but has passed from death unto life. Now, this is a tremendous verse of Scripture. And he's telling us that what you and I need to do is to hear and believe Christ's words. We find them in the Bible. Then rest your faith in the God who sent his Son to save you. He says, you believe in him who sent me. Now, the idea of resting your faith in the God who sent his Son is you're not trusting your goodness or your worthiness or the church you go to, or the religious leader that you follow. You're not trusting a ceremony you went through, or a prayer you prayed. You are putting your faith in God himself, who alone is worthy of your worship and your faith for salvation. Religious leaders of all stripes repeatedly fail God and his people. It's just a reality. But the the, the truth is, God never fails. Don't put your faith and trust in a church, in a denomination, in, in a person. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that person, the one person that you can trust, and in God who sent him. Some people think, well, Christians are egotistical because they say they know they're on their way to heaven. No, it's not egotistical because we're not trusting ourselves. We're trusting in God. And there is a world of difference. My, my confidence in my salvation does not lie in any of the good things I can do or ever have done or ever will do. The reason why I can know I have eternal life is because I have God's promise. Jesus said, he that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. That is a promise that he gave me and it's as good as his character. And if I put my faith in him and I simply came to him, 
As a five-year-old child, I opened my heart and asked Jesus to come into my life and be my Savior. And he came in. And that salvation was a gift that he gave to me simply by my faith. And he adopted me into his family. And he promised that he would never cast me out. John 6, verse 37. And so my, my confidence in my salvation is not based on my goodness or my worthiness before my salvation or during it or after it. It's based upon the promises of God. Matter of fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you may remember that one of the last things he said was he shouted this, pay, he shouted, it is finished. Didn't just croak it out, he shouted it out. And there were Roman soldiers there. To a Roman soldier, that was what they would typically say when they had just won a battle. It is finished. The battle has been won. It would have meant something to them, wouldn't it? Jesus is not losing here. He, he claimed victory. But they're also, in the, in the culture of Jesus' day, among the common Jewish people, who were many of them at the cross, that was the exact words you would write over a bill when the debt had been completely paid. And think about it. As Jesus is dying, he shouts this out. It is finished. The victory is won. It is finished, paid in full. My sin debt, your sin debt, paid in full. So my salvation and my confidence in it cannot rest in myself. It rests in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me, paid in full. And once your faith lies in God and not yourself, God gives you eternal life. He wants you to have it. He's not trying to keep it from you. He says, he who has, here's my word, believes in him who sent me. Now, this is really wonderful. Has everlasting life. Not you're going to get it one day. You have it now. God gives eternal life to you. No, not that your body's, your physical body's going to live forever. Your spirit and your soul are going on to heaven the moment you slip from this life. You have eternal life. Not only that, he says, he says, has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, which means this, you will not be recondemned later. When you become God's child, you are his child for eternity. And then he says, you have passed from death unto life, from spiritual separation from God to fellowship with God. You now are a child of God. Have you done that? What a wonderful, wonderful thing it is to know Christ as your Savior. Now Jesus goes and looks into the future. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Again, notice Jesus calling himself the Son of God. And he is saying, I am going to raise the dead. Not just a few people here and there. We're talking about everybody, saved and lost alike. And not only is he going to raise the dead, he's going to judge them just like he said earlier. So let's notice how he puts this. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, Jesus talking about himself, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. You say, well, I didn't think we were earning our salvation. What is this about those who have done good and those who have done evil going in opposite directions? Well, when Jesus comes into your life, it's not merely 
a, a, a mental thing. It, it's when Jesus becomes your God, it changes the way you live. That means when he gives a command, it, 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 it means something to me. It means I feel obligated to keep it. Now, do I keep it perfectly? Tragically, no. But I am obligated and I feel that obligation. And the more that we walk in obedience to Christ, the more we become like him. And we will do righteous deeds, not from ourselves, but from him, from the life that lives within us through him. It says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So the good that you do starts with your repentance and acceptance of Christ as Savior and your good works that flow then from there will just be the workings of Christ out of your life. And Jesus, the judge of all the world, is going to judge and judge accurately. Now understanding that these claims are, are they're not unusual they are completely unique. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. He is claiming to be equal with God. So how are we supposed to believe this? And what he does at this point is he lays out four lines of evidence of who he is. The fact that he truly is God in the flesh. The first one is his weakest argument. He starts with the weakest one first, interestingly. And that is the witness of John the Baptist. Now he starts out by saying this, verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. The word true means valid. And this point is, is this. I, he's saying, I don't expect you to just take my word for this. He, I can understand that me just saying I am God doesn't make it so for you. Christ isn't saying that his words are false. He's saying that he understands they can't just kind of take his word for it. There have been many other people that have claimed to be God in the flesh and are lying. So now he goes to uh, the uh, one that they would understand. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That would be John the Baptist, the great prophet who preceded Jesus, who said, there's coming one after me whose shoes I am not worthy, sandals I am not worthy to untie. He is saying, behold, the Lamb of God, that's what he calls him, that takes away the sin of the world. He calls him the Son of God. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist bore witness of me, and John was known to be a righteous man, to be a sincere man. He was a martyr for his faith because he told uh, the, the Herod of his day that it was unlawful for him to take his brother's wife from him. And because of that, uh, 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 Herod's new wife absolutely hated John the Baptist and made sure that her husband put him to death. So people knew that John the Baptist was a faithful, godly witness. And Jesus is saying, he bore witness of me. Then he goes on, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Saying John was a great and faithful preacher, and you were blessed by him, and that was true. But obviously, even sincere men are men. John could have been fooled. That's not definitive. John's witness is powerful, but it's not definitive. It's not determinative. So he goes on. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says line of evidence number two is the works that I am doing. I would divide Jesus' works into two categories. The physical miracles that he performed, but to me even more, 
important are the spiritual miracles. We talked to you about some of the physical miracles that he had already done just uh, in his earthly ministry up to the point of this sermon. Turning the water into wine, recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Child healed at, at Capernaum while Jesus was in a different town. Jesus said, your son lives. And that, and that, that fever broke uh, when Jesus said it would, it, it would break. And, and the man was healed. It was recorded in John 4, verses 46 to 54. There was a demon-possessed man healed in the synagogue of Capernaum, recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. God delivered from demonic possession. Peter's mother-in-law and multitudes of others the same day were healed. Every person that came to the door where Jesus was staying on that evening, and, and multitudes came. We're not even told the names of these people other than Peter's mother-in-law being the only one that was named. But multitudes of others came, found mercy, healing from whatever affliction they had with Jesus on that particular occasion. Jesus cleansed the leper, recorded in Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 to 4. Leprosy was considered uncurable in Jesus' day. He forgave and healed a paralyzed man, restores him, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Then there's the healing of a lame man, the guy that Jesus had just healed and told to roll up the bedroll. That happened in Jerusalem in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. These are all miracles that had already preceded what Jesus uh, is, is, is when he's talking now. So when he's saying, my, my works are backing up what I'm saying, he has reason to say that. But, but think, to me, even more powerful are the spiritual miracles that were taking place during Christ's ministry. Now, I can't tell you exactly when all of these people were converted or changed, but I want you to think about some of these folks. First of all, the crooks that were converted. A guy by the name of Zacchaeus, who was one of the chief tax collectors, and, and the tax collectors were known to, to rip people off because they worked for the Roman Empire. Rome was not popular in Israel. They were oppressing Israel. So Jews that worked for Rome were considered traitors. And one of the ways that if they were going to do that occupation, they were going to get rich doing it. That was going to be their motivation. And so they routinely ripped people off of their own countrymen. Zacchaeus was one of the chief of them. And Zacchaeus at his conversion tells Jesus, I'm going to go back. I'm going to give to the people that I stole from four times as much as I took. Now, can you imagine that going through that community as Zacchaeus shows up at door after door giving people money? What a miracle. How about the demon-possessed people he delivered? Well, I mentioned one in the Capernaum uh, synagogue. What about Mary Magdalene? Becomes such a loyal follower. She was possessed by seven different demons. She becomes one of his most loyal followers, is, is, is at the cross with Jesus' mother, a couple others, while Jesus is hanging there. So loyal to the Lord. First one that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Uh, other people. There was a man uh, uh, in a Gentile region who was healed and wanted to follow the Lord back. And Jesus said, no, go back to your home area and tell them what great things God has done for you. How about the immoral people that were completely different? The woman of Samaria, I mentioned her a few minutes ago, the one that said that Messiah is coming. She knew that. That woman had been married five times before she met Jesus. We, we, we only have to wonder what, what happened to her. How about the, the prostitutes that came and found forgiveness? Again, different people, publicans and sinners, the many times the Bible calls them. Just people of all kinds of wicked backgrounds that Jesus changed. But that isn't something that ended at Jesus' life. Jesus is still changing people today. I, I may have mentioned that my dad was a pastor 
before um, when I was a child growing up, we lived in upstate New York near a town called Pulaski, a big salmon area. People know that uh, area because of salmon today. But there was a guy up there. I'll just use his first name. His name was Dave. And Dave was a fairly nice guy when he was sober. But when he got drinking, he was mean and would be in major trouble with the law. I mean, he'd take on policemen, fight them. He just was just was mean. His wife, her name was Ann, and a uh, uh, very troubled home marriage. They had several children. She at uh, one time was, was going to commit suicide. She slit her wrist, and her husband, Dave, came in again, and God's goodness uh, found her before she bled to death, um, and, and she survived. Somehow my dad... Um, got invited into their home. I forget how it worked, but shared the gospel of Christ with this couple and they came to know Christ as Savior. And my dad would tell me about every time he would walk into a certain business in that area, a man would look at him, the owner of the business, and he would say, I cannot believe the change that you made in Dave's, and he calls you know, Dave's life. And my dad would always tell him, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. Do you know some people have been changed? I do. Think of a guy who was in our church. Um, well, let's see, maybe probably close to 15 years ago he started and um, came for a number of years, um, was not converted. I, I wondered if he was or not. I prayed for him uh, because I was concerned that he might not be. Finally, one day he, he came to me and he, he said, I'm really wondering if I'm truly converted or not. And so we prayed and we went up, we, we talked for probably an hour. And this man had, had a quite extensive religious background. He'd been an altar boy as a, as a child. Um, he'd gone to uh, another denomination church um, when he was an adult, had joined there and made what he called a profession of faith. But as we talked, um, he said to me, he said, why is it that I cannot recall a time when I have been born again? And as we prayed and thought about it, finally, I just said to him, I said, John, I said, if you can't tell me when you were saved, can you tell me when you were lost? Because until you really understand you're lost, you can't be saved. And it was almost like it, you know, God just opened his eyes at that point. And he said to me, I've, I've, I've been lying all these years. He felt like because of, of his background and going to church since he was a kid, he felt like he was always in, that he just needed to reform a little bit. And he realized at that point, no, I've never really considered myself lost. I've never really understood that I was on my way to hell. And as he opened his heart to Christ and got saved that night, what a change God made in that guy's life. He was a, a guy that worked with uh, heating, air conditioning. He was very good at it. And uh, But had if you had thought that he would ever get up in front of people and and you know, testify or anything like that, he would never have done that. Matter of fact, uh, just a few days before these events I'm telling you about, he he was uh, had prayed in public, and that was just a very small group of guys for the very first time in his life. Well, after his conversion, it wasn't long before he becomes burdened for the salvation of a friend of his who's dying of cancer in a distant state. 
And so I got roped into going with him. We went down, we talked to this man, and we're not sure what happened. But, but as a result of that, John's, John was able to, to uh, speak at the man's funeral uh, briefly and, and, and did so with, with uh, great zeal. And within a few weeks, John's coming to me saying, uh, I think I might be called to, to preach. And here this guy that had no no thought of anything along that line uh, for years and years, uh, now all of a sudden has this desire to be a preacher. And actually he is today. He's, the reason why he's not in our church, he's, um, he's helped out at several other churches in the area. And now he's, he's actually pastoring a church in the Carbondale area. And you just think of what God can do. What God can do. There's a guy you could look up on Wikipedia. His name is Mel Trotter. T-R-O-T-T-E-R. Mel Trotter was, um, I guess he was living in the Midwest. And alcohol had just completely bound him. Um, to the place where he had a wife and an infant son. And he was drinking the money away. Uh, they were They were impoverished over it. His wife took out a very um, small amount of money, but she had enough, and she said, you need to take this to the drugstore. She said, do not drink it away. She said, this is money we need for our child's medicine. The child was sick. Mel Trotter went out and drank that money away. His child died. As a result of the utter despair that this man was in, wandered into a place that some of you may recognize. It's called Pacific Garden Missions out in the Chicago area. Found Jesus Christ as his Savior, and Mel Trotter completely changed. Mel Trotter became one of the guys who ran the mission for a number of years, preached to people who were very similar circumstances to where he had been, and was mightily used by God until his death. Why? Because Jesus Christ still changes people. He doesn't just claim to be God's son. He makes a difference in people's lives even today. Some of you probably know people, almost all of you probably know someone who would claim and and show evidence of a changed life, go in one direction, completely different. And, and, And what he would tell you or she would tell you is Jesus Christ did this for me. That's what the Lord is saying. He's saying, I'm not just making a claim to be God's son. Look, okay, John the Baptist witnessed of me. I'm telling you that I am. I understand you can't accept those things, but think of the works that I've done. Yes, there were physical miracles, absolutely, but think of the spiritual miracles. Then Jesus goes on. There's the witness of God the Father. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither seen, uh, neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. He's saying, if you really knew God, you'd know me. Yes, God inspired the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Father led John the Baptist in in proclaiming Jesus' coming. Of course, the Holy Spirit involved in these things too. He spoke from heaven even at Christ's baptism. Maybe some of these people, maybe all of them weren't there. But they they weren't recognizing God's voice. And so they didn't recognize his son. Jesus goes and gives a fourth argument, and that is the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, 
But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Oh, what a terrible indictment. Jesus is saying, the Old Testament scriptures talked of me. But the tragedy is, just knowledge of the Bible can't save you. Knowing the Bible and believing the truth it contains are two vastly different things. And then knowing the truth and living it are also two vastly different things. So being religious and going to church or whatever house of worship you may go to, that doesn't save a person. You know, I don't think any of us think that going into a garage makes you a car or going into a a, a gymnasium makes you an athlete. Well, going into church doesn't make you a Christian either. Being religious isn't enough. Many religious people do not have God's love. And Jesus is talking to religious people. He's saying, you do not have the love of God in you. Boy, isn't he bold, though? He also went on to say that many religious people do not have God's discernment. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe we will receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from the only God? Yeah, many religious people lack God's discernment. They can't distinguish between a true prophet and a false one. I'll just give you a personal pet peeve of mine. I just hate it when I see somebody on television, or uh, especially on television, um, and they're constantly in self-promotion. It's not about us. It is a privilege to preach the Word of God. It is something that I know I can say I don't deserve. And I don't think anybody else can say I deserve that privilege either. God deserves the glory. And you just if when people are self-promoting, it's amazing to me that people follow them. It really is. Because that's just not God's spirit. And then they get caught in popular opinion, this kind of groupthink. Why? Because they're not living for the praise of God. They're living for the praise of men. He says, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. You're not seeking honor that comes from from, from the Lord. You're seeking praise of men. And the reality is, the problem is that many religious people do not have genuine faith. He goes on, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. See, these people would all have, have revered Moses, not as God, but as a great, and he was, a great and godly man, gave them the law, gave them the Ten Commandments. But what Jesus is saying is, if you want to stack yourself up against the Ten Commandments, you're going to fail miserably. And that's the same is true for us today. We People think, I'm going to get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. My, my first question is this, A, name them. Because you, you, you might as well not even talk about keeping them if you don't know what they are. So name them. And then secondly, do you keep them? Well, the very first one is no other gods before me. Do we keep that one? Nothing else before the Lord. Nothing, ever. That's keeping that one. The second one is don't make up your own God. No graven image. Okay, so there are not to be worshiping any other graven image, not have a lucky charm or anything like that. Okay, all that's all that's foolishness, violation of that commandment. But not only that, but the idea is is that I can't say, well, I don't view God that way. That's making up your own God. God is who He is. We don't get to make Him up. How about the commandment, "Thou shalt not commit adultery"? It's not merely with your actions; it's your thoughts. Jesus pointed that out in Matthew chapter five. So, 
genuine faith is what we need. You can put your trust in the wrong thing, and you can think you believe when you don't. And so he says, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What do we conclude from this? Well, first of all, Jesus is clearly claiming to be God in the flesh. He's doing it in multiple times in multiple ways. Either he's correct about his identity or, or he is an egotistical madman. And if Christ is in fact God in the flesh, you must believe him to have eternal life. There were some that might have an objection. They'd say, well, well, maybe this was just all made up about Christ after he died. <clears throat> Can I just say that that myth, um, and it was popular about 100 years ago, that myth has been uh, rightfully put to bed a long time ago. And the fact that trying to say that the Gospels were written some, um, you know, two or three hundred years after Jesus when they made up these legends is has been blown out of the water. Anybody that really is trying to hold that um, doesn't know what they're talking about. Now, the gospel writers are writing their... Uh, John is a personal disciple of Jesus Christ who is, who is writing this. He walked with Jesus. It's not, this is not some myth that has been evolved over a few hundred years. John is saying, I walked with him he is God in the flesh, and here's what he said. If Christ then is in fact God in the flesh, you need to believe in him to have eternal life. It's pretty obvious that that's what he's claiming repeatedly. And Jesus is staking his claim on the witness of John the Baptist, his own works, physical miracles, spiritual miracles, the witness of God the Father himself, and the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. It reminds me of a Oh, several years ago, I was at my mechanic's garage. He, my mechanic is a Christian guy himself with his own testimony of what God has done in his life. And my mechanic introduced me to a precious uh, Jewish man who had come to America from, I think, the former Soviet Union. I had a delightful conversation with this guy. And um, while we're talking, um, I felt led to ask him this question. I said, "If let me ask you this. I said, if Jesus really was the Messiah, would you want to know it? It was kind of interesting. He 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 just dodged that question. I uh, began to talk philosophy to set, and he kind of went around, round, round the barn. And and so I let him talk for a few minutes, and then I came back and I said, "But you didn't answer my question. What I asked you is, if Jesus Christ really was the Messiah, would you want to know that? If Jesus was the Messiah, would you want to know it?" And it was interesting. He went around that question again. Talked for several minutes. I came back and I said, now I've asked you twice. <laughs> Can I ask you one more time? I said, Would, you didn't answer my question. If Jesus Christ really was the Messiah, would you want to know this? And my Jewish friend looked at me, kind of gave me a sigh, and he said, yeah, I think I would. At that point, I began to share some things. And let me just give you a few things. Uh, I'll have a few more than I shared with him that day. Old Testament, all these hundreds of years before Jesus was born, do you realize that it was prophesied that Messiah would be the seed of a woman? There was no man specifically identified, just like the uh, hint of the virgin birth, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That Messiah would crush Satan's head, but be hurt in the process. That's also in Genesis 3, 15, first book of the Bible, third chapter. 
that Messiah would be a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. That gets him on, uh, narrows the field down to about a third of the world's population. That was Genesis chapter 9, verse 25 to 27. That Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, who would bless the world. That again limits the field. That was Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. That Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham's son Isaac, because Abraham had actually several children. And Isaac specifically, that was Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 4. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. God, God said that Jacob would be the one that Messiah would come through. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 14, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's where we get the nation of Israel's name from Jacob. This one, Messiah is supposed to come through him. Now we're down to a nation. Jacob has 12 sons. Which one of those? Well, by the time you get to Genesis 49, all of this in the first book of the Bible, we know of Jacob's 12 sons, he's going to come out of a specific tribe of the 12, and that is Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. In Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapters 12 through 14, we have a Passover sacrifice that happens on the, the day the Israelites leave the land of Egypt. The lamb is slain. His blood is placed on the, on the doorpost. It's essential for deliverance from death on that evening. John the Baptist will later call Jesus the Lamb of God. That takes place again. Exodus chapter 12 um, was the, the, the original Passover. Messiah would be king, connect, and his coming would be connected with a star. That was predicted in Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 to 17. Messiah would be born of a virgin. That was predicted in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The fact that he would be both human and God is predicted in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, a tiny little town, is predicted in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. The fact that Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of the people is predicted in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53, verse 12. And there are a ton of prophecies that are all in that, in, in that uh, section of Scripture itself. So I ask you, if Jesus is God's Son, the Savior of the world, if he really was and is God, would you like to know it? Or do you not want to know? Lest the answer to that question drives you to bow your knee before God and his Son. Let's pray. Father, I pray for any who may be listening. And the truth is, they really, up to this point in their lives, have not really wanted to know the answer to that question. They've had excuses. They've had reasons why they don't need to. Whatever they may be, but the bottom line is they've wanted to live life for self. Oh, Lord, rescue that soul, we pray. We pray for those who have been confused, thinking that being religious is good enough. Lord, Jesus was talking to religious people in both his first two messages that we have recorded. And in both of those times, Lord, the religious people were hostile to him. Help us not to trust religion. We have to not to trust ourselves. We need to trust Christ. We need to trust you. Oh, Lord, accomplish what you want through this message, we pray. And we thank you for those that have taken the time to listen. May you bless them for it. In Jesus' name. In each of these first two sermons, Jesus seems to be speaking before many hostile people, yet he courageously told them the truth whether they liked what he had to say or not. Is that not what you would expect from God's Son? Honesty and truthfulness are so necessary when speaking of spiritual matters. Imagine going to a doctor because you have had some unusual symptoms. The doctor hears your concerns and runs some tests. 
When your physician receives the findings, he realizes that your case is worse than you probably imagine. You've got a terminal disease. As he sits in his office, could you blame him for dreading your next appointment? He realizes that he is going to have to share with you things that you do not want to hear. In fact, due to your shock at what he needs to say, he can imagine that you might get quite angry with him, insult him, or even decide to go to another doctor. Yet we all know that the doctor's duty is to tell you the truth. In a similar way, Jesus, the great physician of the soul, will faithfully tell you the truth about your heart, though its spiritual condition is much worse than you imagine it to be. Here's how God describes the disorder of our souls in Scripture. Jeremiah 17.9 states, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Further, the problem of sin in our souls is terminal. Romans 6.23 states, The wages of sin is death. So Christ came to the people of his day with a message that pointed out some of the symptoms of the depth of the problem of sin within their hearts. In today's message, he told the religious leaders that they were self-serving and did not truly love God. The solution? They needed to humble themselves, repent of their sins against God, and recognize Jesus as their Messiah. What they decided to do with that information probably varied with the listener, though it's obvious that sadly many listening to Jesus on that day refused to believe his diagnosis and thus rejected his cure for their sins. Dear friend, what will you do with Christ's message today? When Pastor Jones closed his message, he asked a simple question. If Jesus really is God's Son, the Savior of the world, would you like to know it? If you would like to know whether Christ is truly God, I would encourage you to read the entire Gospel of John for yourself. John, one of the disciples who was closest to Christ, will give you a front row seat on some of Jesus' greatest miracles and conversations. It's a great place to start if you want to learn about what the scriptures claim about Christ's identity. Pastor Jones began this series in our church about two years ago, so if you'd like to see video messages of this ongoing series, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. We also have a website, CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. There you can find more information about our church. Also, since the COVID-19 crisis hit, Pastor Jones has been giving a short devotional from God's Word on a daily basis. If you'd like to access any of those devotionals, you can find them on our Facebook page. Finally, I would like to invite you to tune in next week as we begin Christ's most famous recorded sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. I believe you will find this message to lay out the highest standards for ethics known to man. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.